0: Good morning, I'm so glad you're with us today. We are in part two of a three-week series called Taboo, part two. Last February, I did, I think, four weeks in a series called Taboo, where uh, we just kind of said to the church, like, church should be the place we're not afraid to talk about some things. And last February, I walked us through a few sensitive topics. Last week, I talked about what it's like to be a, a follower of Jesus while living in a polarized culture. I want to talk today about what it means to value life and kind of build on that next week. Last week, I used a a statement that I've used multiple times throughout the years, but it's this, Jesus is Lord and blank is not. This has been a prayer I often pray almost every day of my life. I just recite this to myself. And there are times I use this as a prayer to acknowledge the idols that I have allowed to be created in my life. And there are times I use this as a prayer to try to confront and keep idols from establishing themselves in my life. So the early church would say something like this, like Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. Jesus is Lord, Rome is not. And for us, it should be something like me. Jesus is Lord and President Trump is not. Jesus is Lord, the Democratic Party is not. Jesus is Lord, the Republican Party is not. Jesus is Lord, my spouse is not. Jesus is Lord, my children are not. Jesus is Lord, my, my work is not. Jesus is Lord, Central Barbecue is not. Like whatever it is that may be establishing it. In your, play, in your life, it's something that is setting up an idol or sitting on a throne. We've got to acknowledge it, speak it, confess it, and, and move forward. Join me today in John chapter 10. And I want to use John 10 to lay a foundation of how Jesus goes about life. And then I want to spend the second part of this message trying to help this come to life in very practical ways for us. Uh, John 10 is uh, this probably many of us, you'll acknowledge this, you'll, you'll know this story when it starts. But in John 10, I want to work us through these 17 verses. So if you have your Bible in front of you, we're going to have these verses on the screen. If you, have the, if you have your phone out and the Bible is on your phone, be prepared just to highlight some things. This may be something you want to go back to and study throughout the week. But it starts with this in verse 1. Very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, and some of your versions don't have Pharisees in verse 1, but very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by another way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. Now, let me set the stage for you before we go any further, because chapter nine ends, Chapter 10 begins where chapter 9 ended. And all of chapter 9 is this story of Jesus healing a blind man, and he healed a blind man on a Sabbath day, which usually got Jesus in trouble. So chapter 9 ends with this blind man who is, it says he worships Jesus. Because a blind man who didn't know who Jesus was has been healed by Jesus. Now the blind man is worshiping Jesus, acknowledges who Jesus is. And now the Pharisees are there too. And the Pharisees are upset about what Jesus did on the Sabbath day. So now Jesus is going to tell the story. So I want you in your mind to visualize as Jesus is speaking these words. Those in front of him is a blind man who Jesus just made well. So that guy has received all of this with really great news. His life has been forever changed. And Jesus is also speaking of Pharisees, who many of them were claiming to be the very shepherds Jesus is saying, you're really not one of those. So they're right there in the presence of Jesus too. So while on one hand, this is a careful pastoral word Jesus is teaching. On the other hand, this is a strong indictment about those who thought they were being faithful pastors. So verse 4, when he has brought out all his own, the shepherd, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice, but they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used, this figure of speech, uh, Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. Verse 7, therefore, Jesus said again, very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. In the book of John, Jesus uses an I am statement at least seven, maybe eight times. Where he's declaring something about who he is in God and what his mission is, and and now he's going to say two in the next few verses, and he's going to repeat them because any good teacher has to repeat themselves because any good listener forgets what the teacher often says. Right, verse seven. Therefore, Jesus said, "Very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate." Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out because that's a call of the church. We come in, we go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. And some of you have this hanging on a mirror, on a refrigerator. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I have come that they may have life and they may have it abundantly. Verse 11, I am the good shepherd. Not just the shepherd, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when the hired hand sees the wolf come in, the hired hand abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he's a hired hand and he cares nothing for the sheep. But verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me just as the father knows me and I know the father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of the sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there will be, and I love this one flock, one shepherd. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. So, there are a couple of times in here where Jesus says, I am the gate. And I know I've taught this some, and it was good for me to come back to this, be reminded of how great and wonderful and amazing and active Jesus is in our lives. But what this meant back in the day, when a shepherd would pastor their sheep, so they're taking them into, they're they're going to find food, and they're going to find water. And then whenever the day was over, what a shepherd would do is they would lead the sheep into a fold. Sometimes that fold would be like a cave with one entrance. Sometimes it, it may be some kind of barricade the shepherd has set up. But the shepherd would function as the gate. So all the sheep were about to come into the fold, but as they came through the gate, the shepherd would put himself there in the gate where the shepherd would inspect each sheep that was coming in for the night. The shepherd would take the sheep into his hands, and I love this, and some of you need this today, just in your life, to know how great God is for you and what he wants for you, is that the sheep would take them in, and the shepherd would take that sheep into his arms, and the shepherd would... You know comb the hair of the sheep and and pull out any any thorns uh, that had, that were caught in the sheep and the shepherd would uh, fix any broken bones and take care of the and, and anoint oil on the the nose and the face of the sheep because flies would fly around the sheep and would like literally drive it nuts to where it's banging its head on rock so that shepherd would tend to eat sheep as they went into the fold for the night and then after all the sheep went into the fold, the shepherd would lay down and would literally become the gate to where if any wolf or any, uh, any lion or any thief wanted to come in, they would literally have to go over the shepherd's dead body to get to the sheep. So as the sheep would come in, the shepherd was the gate to tend to each sheep that was coming in for the night. And once the sheep were in, the shepherd would become the gate that would protect and make sure nothing came in to harm the sheep. This is what Jesus is for us too. Tends to us, nurtures us, and once we're in, protects us, provides security. And for Jesus in his teaching, it's not just that he's the gate, he's also the good shepherd. He is the one who leads his people who are listening for his voice and know the voice of Jesus. When the voice of Jesus comes to where Jesus is leading us out to find whatever we need to nurture our lives, food and water and, and, and things like that. Jesus is the gate and Jesus is the good shepherd. So when I became passionate about evangelism late in high school, and as I've told you before, when I was working at a CC's Pizza my senior year of high school, which became one of the primary places for evangelism in my life, I witnessed hundreds of people come to the Lord through that CC's Pizza in Mesquite, Texas. And after feeding people all the buffet food that they would come, we would have Bible studies happening in all these rooms in the back of that that CC's. And John 10 is often what I would use to help lead people to the Lord. I would place John 10 in front of people who knew something about the Bible, and I would place it in front of people who knew nothing about the Bible, and I would talk about how good Jesus is as the good shepherd and how good Jesus is as the gate who welcomes, welcomes us into a fold. And, and John 10, 1 through 17 also says, Jesus says, like, the shepherd needs to go out and find those who aren't in. So Jesus is the one searching for those who were lost and disconnected and don't know who God is. And hopefully it's a text that performs for you in some way today too. In John 10, 10, Jesus says this. What the shepherd does is he's come to give you an abundant life. And abundant life is something that begins now. It's not just something you get one day. Abundant life is a life of meaning and purpose and worth. And this is what so many of us want. I want this to be my legacy for my children. I want this to be the legacy. Wherever it is, I get to preach the gospel. Is that what Jesus has to offer you and what he wants to invite you into is this abundant life. A life that is full of meaning and purpose in God. And we spend most of our lives trying to find this this kind of meaning and purpose and worth. I remember about 10 or 11 years ago, I was about to preach a sermon here on purpose and worth. And I remember sitting over on my shelf was Rick Warren's book, The Purpose Driven Life. He wrote that book back in the 90s and I had not read that book until I was about to preach a sermon here. So I broke the rule of the purpose-driven life because Rick Warren says in the purpose-driven life, do not read this in one setting. You were supposed to read this over a 40-day period of study and devotion. So in the book, he says, don't do it. But I did it all in one day. I read like 350 pages. I wanted to see what this book was all about because at that time, I knew Rick Warren had sold over 40 million copies of the book meaning he had made well over $40 million on this book, The Purpose Driven Life. He made so much money where Rick and Kay Warren were able to start to reverse tithe. So instead of living on 90 and giving 10, they were living on 10 and giving away 90. Now his 10% is probably better than any of our 100% in the room. But still, like, he made so much money he was able to do that. So I was just curious, why would so many people around the world, why were they drawn to the book and what did they like about the book? So I read it all in one day. And I, I've got to admit, and I don't mean this as a knock on Rick Warren or the book, but there weren't, like, there weren't chapters just like blew me away with brand new fresh content. It was just chapter after chapter of reminders of the promises of God. So I read all of it. And then I remember in the very first pages of the book, here's, where, here's what Rick Warren says. So if you picked up The Perfect Driven Life, which some of you probably read this back in the 90s, and you started reading it, the very first page says this. This is more than a book. It is a guide to a 40-day spiritual journey that will enable you to discover the answer to life's most important questions. Question, what on earth am I here for? By the end of this journey, you will know God's purpose for your life and will understand the big picture, how all the pieces of your life fit together. And having this perspective will reduce your stress, simplify your decisions, increase your satisfaction, and most important, prepare you for eternity. And if you were reading that, you would say, I think I want that too. Like, that's what I want. And 40 million copies later, he tried to fulfill that promise. No, I can't make those same promises to you today. That if you understand John 10, you understand the abundant life, all these things will happen for you. But I think we will understand life better. And when it comes to Jesus and how Jesus went about life, here are three things that I want. I'm going to unpack these for the rest of this time. Life groups meeting today, I encourage you to talk about these three things. When it comes to Jesus and life, when it comes to life and Jesus, here's what we learn from Jesus. Jesus commits to life. Jesus protects life. Jesus nurtures life he commits to life protects life nurtures life so Jesus wants dead things to come to life he's committed to it he wants to protect it just like that good shepherd once they are in the fold he protects and once it's there Jesus wants to nurture it Jesus saves and those whom he has saved he protects what he has saved he nurtures what he has saved so is it a leap for me this morning to make an argument now for the rest of this message that if we are followers of Jesus and we take our baptism seriously, that Jesus wants us to do the same. That just as Jesus committed to life and protects life and nurtures life, Jesus is asking us, live your life in a way where you commit to life, you protect life, you nurture life. Commit, protect, nurture I think if most of us were honest, what we would say is, for the most part, we selectively commit to life, we selectively protect life, and we selectively nurture life. So before I go on, I want to help make this in a very practical ways for the rest of this message. I want to address a couple of things going on in our culture, uh, and to do that, uh, will you bow your heads and will you pray with me? For God, as I, I speak a few words from here on out, I just I rely on prayers I pray every single week, that your Holy Spirit will work through me in the words I say to, to touch hearts, to inspire us, to challenge us. and. God, if I say anything over the next few minutes that doesn't honor who you are and the truth of who you are and your character, God, in the name of Jesus, may those words fall to the ground and be trampled by you and not be remembered at all. But if I speak words that honor who you are and what your heart beats for, may those words sink deep into our hearts and mess with us and bear great fruit throughout this week. I pray, God, in this room today that you will keep any filters from flying up, but only a filter that helps us to see Jesus in greater ways. Bless those in this room to have ears to hear, and bless my mouth that speaks. I pray this in the power of the name of Jesus. Amen. So let me work this through some relationships in our lives. Commit, protect, nurture life. In this church, we have 19 elders, 19 men who I've gotten to know pretty well over the years. Men I believe in men i look to look up to men who are good husbands they are good fathers and one thing i love is that when i sit in leadership meetings with these 19 elders they don't sit around talking about how to make this worship experience on sunday mornings better or what needs to change in a worship experience what they want to talk about and what they want to pray about is how do we pastor people better how do we help usher people into the heart of god And I remember the movie, The Patriot, Mel Gibson movie, that there's this scene where the priest of the community decided to go join them out in their battle. And what the priest said is, there are times when a shepherd has to tend to the flock and there are times when a shepherd has to to protect the sheep. And there are times when shepherds are tending and there are times where shepherds have to protect and what I see I see this lived out in the leaders of this church where they are committing to the life of people in this room they want to protect the lives of people in this room and they want to nurture the lives of people in this room So what does this look like for for your children? So a few weeks ago, God gave me a new way to pray for my kids, which just then led me into a new way to pray for you. I found myself in a season of intercession. As I would walk this room praying over the church, and as, as I was praying over my children every day, I found myself praying a lot for God to guard hearts, guard hearts, protect hearts, And especially for my kids. My my kids are 12 and 10 now, which blows me away, right? But then my kids come home with questions like they're being introduced to things and concepts that I wasn't introduced to until later on in my teenage years. And they're coming home asking some big questions about life, which leads me to just one thing to do. Go talk to your mom about it. (laughs) Uh, She's the one who can help you work through this. Uh, 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 Not really, but I wanted to do that a lot, but... And, and I just guard their hearts, protect their hearts, guard their hearts, protect their hearts. And one day it was like the Lord just dropped a new prayer in me. It was, Josh, as you pray for me to guard their hearts, how about you also pray for me to cultivate the heart that I guard? Because it's possible to set, set up a privacy fence in your house, around your house, yet let your yard get totally out of control. That I want God to guard a heart from the flaming arrows of the enemy, but I'm also asking God to, God, will you cultivate the hearts of my children? Cultivate the hearts that you guard. Nurture the hearts that you guard. For the people in this church, may God protect your hearts and guard your hearts, but also cultivate and nurture what that heart is. So what does this right here look like in your marriages? To commit, to protect, to nurture. To nurture. Because if you are not exercising in your marriage, these things, then, then sooner or later, your marriage is out of shape, just like a body's out of shape, if there's no exercising going on. And what does this look like in a neighborhood or whether it's your coworkers, if you live your life trying to think about, what does it mean, what does this look like, do I do this, how, how do I do this in the world? To commit, to protect, to nurture. What does it look like when you're engaging in relationships with neighbors and coworkers? Because I remember when Casey and I first moved into Binghamton about nine years ago. One of the first Christmases, we were away for a week. We reached out to a friend and we said, hey, we're, we're gone for a week. Do you mind going and picking up our mail? So we had a friend from this church who went to pick up our mail from our house. And we had already been developing some good relationships with people in our neighborhood. And when we had a neighbor see a complete stranger walking up to our porch to get mail, our neighbor went crazy. Our neighbor came out yelling and screaming, and I'm not gonna repeat some of the words she said, but she was, Who do you think you are? I need to see some ID. What are you doing taking Josh and Miss Casey's mail? And I've seen this neighbor, I saw this neighbor fight before, and I would not get in her. I would hire her to do security at this church. Like she was, I have seen her throw down, and she almost went off on a member of this church for just taking mail. And I remember thinking, she's protecting us maybe better than we're protecting her but when it comes to the people in our lives almost every day what are we doing to commit to speaking life into them to protect the life that is in them and to nurture the life that is there and let me let me kind of peel off a layer and go just a little deeper this past thursday i went to a black history month program at snowden elementary the Snowden elementary and snowden middle school but this was the snowden elementary part and the 4th 5th graders which Noah my son is a part of it part of them put on a hour long performance that was wonderful i was so proud of them and in that performance what they did is they just led us through the decades of most of the 20th century And how some African Americans, in some some decades it was harder than others, that they rose above the circumstances and challenges to become these wonderful musicians and athletes and people who had a major impact on culture around us. And this was a story that they told for an hour where they celebrated Black History Month in a way that was honoring history, celebrating history, pointing out challenges in history. It was wonderful. And they also reminded us That there was a time when you could mistreat a human being in our country and it wasn't against the law. That there was a time when you could physically mistreat a human being and you'd have support doing it. And there was a time when the church, especially the white church, was silent about oppression and segregation and racism, sometimes because people just had mean-spirited hearts and other times because people just didn't know what to do. And there's this call that keeps coming to the the, the people of God, no matter what era or what decade or century we live in. That when you read the Bible and you try to take seriously the Bible and just take the New Testament, try to take seriously the New Testament, very rarely is the New Testament just encouraging people not to hate. It's encouraging people to love. Because you can try, and I know this isn't the best English, you can try to not, not hate in your life. To not be a person who hates, but just because you don't hate doesn't mean that you're actively trying to love. So when it comes to trying to engage racial reconciliation and embracing people from different nationalities, it's not just that you don't hate. It's what am I doing to commit to life, protect life, and nurture life? To everything I'm a part of. Everything around us is somehow coming to life in God through our commitment, relationship, and investment. And one other topic, Uh, a lot of times in our culture today, when we hear life, it ends up being a conversation about the unborn or abortion. So let me just try to address this through what I see the whole Bible doing. And one of the challenges is some of the categories we work with today weren't really around in the Bible time. The Bible didn't have movements that were what was best for women. This just didn't happen. I mean, by the New Testament, their life was better for women than it was in some parts of the Old Testament and some parts of the New Testament culture, where women had authority and women had places in leadership and women could own businesses and they could actually receive money if their husband died and things like that. But for the most part throughout the Bible, women, their primary social role was as a wife and a mother. That, that, that was their primary social role. And today, living in the 21st century, I know it's different. And we applaud, and I think it's a movement of God, both outside the church and inside the church, how the Spirit of God is bringing men and women to life to use their voices in some powerful ways. In the Bible, children are a great blessing from God. And in the Bible, barrenness and childlessness was often seen as a terrible affliction. Now I think we are, have been able to move with God that we're more sensitive with the language we use and Tom kind of addressed it earlier, but like if you're a single woman or a single person in this room, we don't hold the view that, that for you to get to a better place of maturity, you need to be married or if you're married that you have to be a husband, I mean a, a dad or a, or a, a mother to, to be everything God wants you to be. God is calling you to be who you are, where you are. In the Bible, women found their primary social role as wives and mothers, And in the Bible, nowhere is pregnancy thought to be a problem. In fact, in the Bible, when conception happens and when there is a pregnancy, it is celebrated and there is great joy, whether it's a young mother or an older mother. And here's why. Because people believe that God was a great creator and God is the cultivator of life and God is the author of life and that the entire pregnancy process is the creative power of God at work. That That this whole pregnancy thing that happens inside of a woman's womb, it's not like God is working a Lego structure, putting pieces together, or God's putting a puzzle together with a lot of pieces. It's that God is taking something so small, and he is developing that over time to be what we call a human being. And for the church and the people of God throughout the Bible... They portray this reality in which abortion would have been unthinkable. And here's why. It was all around them. It was happening. It was happening in the Roman Empire. There were methods for it. And they also lived in a time when you had a child and you didn't want the child because it was born a specific gender, usually female or disabled, that you could get rid of the child, throw it over the wall of a fence, leave the child in the woods, and there would be no negative consequences for you at all. And this, these things happen, and you have like pieces like the Didache, which is a, a piece that was written toward the end of the 1st century, maybe early 2nd century, in which there's a second part of the Didache. And you can, you can even look this up and read the whole Didache. And the second part is these things that you should not do, that believers in God should not do. And one of them is you should not murder a child by abortion, nor kill that which is born. And it's in a section where it's not just saying for the church, like here are things you don't do. It's just, hey... There's another way the church is called to live. There's another way the church is called to engage culture around us. A new ethic, a new responsibility that is given to you. And the early church responded to life like this. When the early church was at their best, and the early church wasn't always at their best, but when the early church was at its best, the driving question for them was, who is my neighbor? Something they didn't get from Mr. Rogers They got from Jesus. And when the church was at its best, the driving question for them was, who is my neighbor? And this was huge. They got it straight from Jesus. And this this question, who is my neighbor, had an impact on how the church did friendship in their culture and how they interacted with their family in their culture, how they interacted with co-workers and soldiers throughout the Roman Empire and how they interacted with the poor and the blind and the lame and widows and single mothers and children outside the womb. And children inside the womb. There's a story that comes from Pliny the Younger. He was a governor in the Roman province, and Pliny the Younger was not a believer. So he received this edict from the emperor. Hey, there are some Christians running around your province. You need to do something about it. Well, Pliny the Younger didn't really know anything about Christians. So he sent in spies to a Christian community, like, hey, I need you to go find out, like figure out, like, what are these people about? What are they doing? We hear about them, we see them doing things, but what are they doing? And the findings, he, what he found out, was like, man, these, these people, they get together once a week, and they sing songs, and they pray prayers, and they break bread, and they engage in fellowship. And what they knew, and what they learned from when these Christians got together is they, they remind each other of the oath they took with Jesus. And they try to live out that oath in every day of their lives, just everyday life. That was an oath they took seriously, which was an oath about a new ethic, a new life, a new responsibility. And it was an oath that led the early church to go find the babies when they were thrown over walls or left in the woods. And it wasn't that an individual would bear responsibility for a child. It was that the entire church would bear responsibility for the child. And the church developed the reputation, if you don't want your children, we'll take them in. If you are lonely or you're mistreated or you're on the fringes, we will take you into this community. Because Jesus taught us to commit to life, to protect life, and to nurture life. In 1994, Mother Teresa was asked by Bill Clinton to speak at the National Prayer Breakfast. And Mother Teresa spent a good bit of her speech talking about the problem of abortion throughout the world. And her cry to everybody was, if you don't want your baby, I'll take it. Like, I'll take it. The community will begin to bear responsibility as we commit, protect, and nurture. Now, there are those and I think we, find, we have found this to be true. There are those who will fight to get babies into the world, but then once the babies are born into the world, we'll treat them as if they've been aborted. There are those who fight to get them into the world and then we'll neglect them once they're in the world, which is why we have to be really careful to get hijacked by phrases I've refused to use up until this moment in this sermon of pro-life or pro-choice. And at the risk of sounding trite or simplistic or even corny, the call of baptized people is every day of our lives is to be pro-Jesus. And as we are pro-Jesus, we will see how life works from Jesus and how life flows throughout the rest of our lives, and we will, we will be invited to join it. I was challenged years ago to have a consistent ethic of life, not a selective ethic of life, a consistent ethic of life from the womb to the tomb to stand for life. And when you look at Jesus, Jesus is for people. I believe Jesus is for the womb and Jesus is for the city and Jesus is for the world and Jesus modeled a way of life and when the church has been at its best, the church has embraced a way of life where we visit prisoners and we shelter the poor and we respect women and we feed the hungry and we pray for enemies and we love enemies and we care for the immigrant and we stand up for the abused and we advocate for people who are wrapped in a different color skin or a different nationality to us And, and I want you to hear this, and the church has been at its best. When it's been at its best, it has offered forgiveness and a way forward for those who have neglected to do those things in their past, to let them know that whatever you have done is not what defines you for the rest of your life, that Jesus gives us a way forward. And what we know, and hopefully what we get a little bit of today, is to be for life is harder than our culture makes it out to be. And the church rallied. And they gave their allegiance to the kingdom of God as a commitment to commit, to protect, and to nurture. So with what is left in your life on this earth, how will you inject life everywhere you go? Because everywhere Jesus went, he injected life into people. So God, right now, if you bow your heads and let's pray. God, right now, I'm asking in this room. For those who are struggling to grasp the beauty and power of life, that you will take hold of them. And for those who in their past have maybe abused any way that you want to honor life, that you will speak words of forgiveness and words over their guilt and shame. And God, as we leave this place today here in a few minutes a place that you will place in front of us, ways that you were in the process of creating in this world and ways you were so eager to inject life in our very context, and you will give us both the eyes to see it and give us the courage to live into wherever it may be. I pray, God, that you give people in this room a handle of something that has been said this morning that they can take hold of, that will nurture their hearts and call us to be a certain kind of people in our communities this week. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. And I want to ask if our elders and prayer leaders will go and surround this room. So we're here to receive you. We're here to speak words of blessings over you. On the tables, you'll find on the four tables in the middle of this room, we have some blank cards, but we also have cards that says, Jesus is Lord and blank is not. And you can take those home. You can use those, uh, put them in your wallet, hang them on a mirror. Or you may choose, like last week, to write something on there and leave it for me and some of us to pray over throughout this week. But right now, can we stand as a church and let's declare this is an anthem to God.